This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon, folks. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. We'll have some time for your phone calls coming up in this hour. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. In Calgary, 403-974-8255. Yesterday was, uh, according to Alberta's Premier, historic. As in uh, a day of a historic victory. Uh, the federal liberals, however, don't uh, quite see it that way. This all concerns a decision that came down. It was essentially a 4-1 decision, kind of 3-1-1. One one. But basically one dissenting uh, vote on the Alberta Court of Appeal on the question of whether C-69, what became the Impact Assessment Act, is constitutional. So the majority decided it was not. Now, this is a result of the Alberta government going to court back in September of 2019, asking them to rule on. Uh, the constitutionality of this legislation. So the bill is still in effect, like the law still exists. I mean, it hasn't been struck down by the court. This was the court's answer to the question that the Alberta government posed. Nonetheless, uh, the federal government has made it clear that they are going to appeal. So Alberta sees this as an infringement on provincial jurisdiction, both the provincial jurisdiction as it applies to the environment, but also provincial jurisdiction as it applies to natural resources. The federal government maintains that this is all within their, their jurisdiction. And they believe that uh, uh, a stricter assessment act raising the bar when it comes to the environment ensures that projects that are approved are environmentally sound and the Canadians can have more confidence in that. So there's where the lines are drawn. Look, the court acknowledges, and I think obviously Alberta acknowledges, that the federal government does inherently have some say in projects that cross provincial bounds. Otherwise, B.C., uh, could have just said no to Trans Mountain, which they kind of tried to do before failing miserably. But does the federal government have any say over a project that's entirely within the borders of a single province? So some interesting questions this decision raises, probably going uh, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, I would imagine. But uh, joining us uh, for some further thoughts on uh, what transpired yesterday, where this all goes from here. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, David Wright, a law professor at the University of Calgary with a focus uh, on energy law. David, uh, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Uh, so what was your initial reaction? Were you, were you surprised by anything in that ruling yesterday? Uh, well, first of all, I think your summary was really well done, Rob. And in short, the upshot uh, in the reference case opinion was not all that surprising. It was pretty close to what many of us expected to um, come out of the court, a split decision, majority finding um, the act constitutional and a small minority of one uh, finding it unconstitutional. So it was pretty close to what we expected. Of course, there's, there's details in there, and there are certainly some bits that raised eyebrows. 
Well, and we can talk about some of those. I, I think a lot of people are noticing the parallel here that uh, this court uh, came to a similar conclusion about the federal carbon tax, which obviously the Supreme Court of Canada took a very different view on. Are, are there some parallels between these two cases? Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, uh, everyone had pretty good tea leaves to read, if you will, based on um, the reference case regarding the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, basically the federal carbon pricing regime just a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that helped everyone predict more accurately what the outcome would likely be here. And uh, what's, you know, the further parallel there is that both of these deal with longstanding questions around division of powers between and jurisdiction between province, the provinces and federal government. These are longstanding issues. There's a significant body of jurisprudence and, and legal doctrine that has been built up over the decades to help um, society, if you will, and the economy and political uh, uh, entities to navigate that uh, that line between jurisdiction and also how jurisdictions can cooperate. So certainly the carbon pricing reference was helpful uh, in a predictive way, but now we have a little bit more um, more to chew on since uh, since yesterday. Right. So as we look at this ruling, and I, I think the court seems to be saying that uh, even though there is shared jurisdiction, the federal government has gone too far, that essentially what's billed as an approval process is almost kind of a, a regulatory process and, and therefore is is going beyond its constitutional bounds. I mean, is, is that, does that kind of sum it up, or, or what, what do we need to know about what the court's saying here? Yeah, no, that's a good summary. Uh, you know, I think what you have here is, is a bit of a dichotomy between the majority and minority. That's not surprising. That's kind of inherent in how these things go. But what you see is the majority really emphasizing concerns with um, what it sees as exclusive jurisdi- uh, provincial jurisdiction over natural resources exploration and development. Um, versus the federal powers to uh, plan and spot and regulate in relation to potential effects on areas of federal jurisdiction. So the majority, in a nutshell, really puts a lot of weight on those concerns about provincial jurisdiction, perhaps with um, less balance or less attention than one might expect to the limits inherent on federal jurisdiction within the Act, but also the strength of the federal jurisdiction that's at play underpinning the act whereas in the, in the minority um, dissent you see a little bit more nuanced understanding of the limits inherent in, in the statute as well as the constitutional doctrine that has been built up over the years to recognize federal jurisdiction to engage in environmental assessment and impact assessment yeah, you talk about you know some of the aspects of this ruling that did uh, raise some eyebrows and and some of it seemed Political. Some of the, the language seems somewhat political. Almost some of the framing of the, the issues seemed political. What, what did you make of that? Yeah, there's been lots of attention and commentary on that front over the last, whatever it's been, 28 hours. Yeah. Um, and and I, I tend to agree. So I, I, one of the stories that came out yesterday afternoon described it as fiery language. Others have said political. I think that's all a fair assessment. And it was surprising to see, to some extent, it's not too unusual for... Uh, courts to provide some historical and political context around an issue, especially one as contentious as this. You even saw that from the Supreme Court of Canada in its uh, ultimate opinion on the carbon pricing regime. But this went a little bit beyond what one might expect. And um, I think another word that's been used is his hyperbole. And I, I also think that that's a, a fair assessment. So that was that was surprising to see and, and certainly exposes the majority opinion to critique and, and to potential response and reframing by the Supreme Court when it arrives there. Which it inevitably will, right? 
Yes, all signs point to yes. In fact, I think as you alluded to at the outset, Rob, um, the federal government, um, the federal minister of uh, environment has already uh, clearly indicated that, first of all, that they still see this act as constitutional um, and they believe it is constitutional, it remains in effect, all that sort of stuff, and that um, they uh, they expect it will be held to be uh a rule to be constitutional when it does go to the Supreme Court of Canada and that they plan to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Which would be the next step. So I guess the only thing precluding that would be for the Supreme Court to look at this and say there's there's no basis for us to hear this appeal. And that, that seems pretty unlikely, doesn't it? Highly unlikely, yeah. I mean, the only other thing that could change, um, and this gets into the political, I would defer to political scientists on this, but if somehow there were a federal election between now and when the Supreme Court of Canada would hear it, um, then it could be that the new federal government abandons the decision to appeal this to the Supreme Court of Canada. Although, you know, it's hard to predict that. Even uh, a new, say, conservative government may want to pursue it just to get the legal clarity, you know, to the extent that all everyone is interested in legal and regulatory certainty and clarity there's value still kind of remaining to be recognized, if you will, um, in the form of, of, a, of, a, of a definitive, clear Supreme Court of Canada opinion on this matter. I mean, ultimately, regardless of what happens, I mean, there is still going to be a federal approval process. Maybe it, it looks a little differently. Maybe it doesn't go as far as, as the uh, Impact Assessment Act does. But I think even this ruling is conceding that there is federal jurisdiction when it comes to uh, project approval. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So the, the majority of opinion uh, from the Alberta Court of Appeal is quite clear that um, it understands and recognizes um, Supreme Court of Canada precedent that, um, that that supports federal involvement in environmental assessment. It says very clearly, you know, provinces have jurisdiction to engage in environmental assessment. So does the federal government. Um, they just see uh, they just take a much more narrow reading of that legal landscape and suggest that certain projects, especially those that they call intra-provincial projects ought not be assessed by the federal government. And the other side of that coin, of course, is that those even those intra-provincial projects may have effects on areas of federal jurisdiction. So that's where the federal government comes in. The question is really around the edges of that. You know, what are the limits on um, federal jurisdiction in this, in this area? Yeah, and that, that's tricky because, um, you know, the argument is that, okay, well, if a project is emitting greenhouse gases, that obviously transcends provincial borders. So even if it's a project located wholly in Alberta or any other province, that there are potentially national implications, right? So how, how does a court assess something like that? Well, that, that's where um, uh, the dissent is probably closer more closely aligned with existing precedent that recognizes the situation to be exactly as you just described, Rob, that um, first of all, this regime is predicated on only assessing the so-called major natural resources infrastructure projects. These are, these are massive projects. And in the development of this project list, that's the list of projects that are likely to be subjected to an assessment, um, the, the government, the federal government at the time was very careful to try to include only those that are most likely to have effects on areas of federal jurisdiction. So that's like a constitutional safeguard that's built into the act. And even, even with that intake valve, if you will, there's then a next step cryptically uh, called the screening step, where if after sort of a preliminary review, the federal government doesn't actually see much risk of impact on um, areas of federal jurisdiction, then there may be no assessment required at all, even if it is one of these massive projects that's on the project list. So there are these different guideposts and checkpoints built into the act to safeguard against that potential um, federal creep. 
Very interesting. Well, we'll await the inevitable Supreme Court case on this. Uh, Professor Wright, appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here today. Thank you. Take care. You as well. David Wright, Assistant Professor, Faculty of Law, University of Calgary, with a focus on energy and natural resource law. So his reaction uh, to this ruling yesterday, where this is all going from here. And I think there's some issues that need to be cleared up. Maybe that's a case for expediting uh, this appeal from the government and, and getting some clarity on these points so we can move forward here. Well, the federal government still intends on moving forward with legislation to regulate uh, against uh, so, so-called online harms. But it's been back to the drawing board. The uh, initial proposal met with a lot of criticism. Uh, the government has sent the bill back to an expert panel. And uh, we'll, we'll see what they come up with. So what's the best approach to this? Uh, because no doubt that there are uh, harms, uh, to use that term, when it comes to uh, online content. But what's the best way of regulating all of that? Because a lot of concerns have been expressed about the potential uh, free speech implications uh, of the kind of regulations that uh, Ottawa was talking about initially. So where's that balance? To that end, there's a new report out from the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression, which takes a look at uh, how we can do this in a productive way. And I suppose it's, uh, it's quite timely that we've got this uh, new report. Joining us to talk a bit more about some of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Taylor Owen, who is director of the Center for Media Technology and Democracy at McGill University, co-chair of the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression. Uh, Taylor, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, the timing's interesting. Obviously, the the commission has been working on some set timelines here, so the Mm -hmm. the release of this report, I think we'd been expecting for some time, but it does come amid Mm -hmm. a pretty important conversation on this issue. Yeah, look, I think, as you mentioned, um, the government issued one potential path for regulating content online um, nearly a year ago now. Um, And it faced a lot of criticism, and I think rightly so. Um, There are two sort of broad ways you you can regulate content online. One is to try and get companies to take it down once things are out in the world, whatever harmful things you might um, want removed from the internet. Um, You can have incentives and penalties for companies not taking it down. And that's the approach they went with. Um, But that runs into all sorts of free speech issues because it's very difficult to decide what is and is not illegal speech. Um, It's very hard to ensure that the companies don't over-censor in order to avoid very large fines. And so I think the government was, was rightly criticized for going that approach. Um, but there is another way of doing it, which is, is to shift the burden on the companies themselves and change the, the incentive structure so that they, um, they build uh, risk assessments and potential sort of uh, protections into the products themselves as they're designing them. And uh, that's the path that we've chosen, the one that we hope the government will too. So why is that a, a, a preferred way to go here? Well, because... One is just like the pure, unmanageable scale of the task of right. taking down bad things on the Internet. I mean, there are over 100 billion pieces of content posted to Facebook products every day. So even just the task of, just, of monitoring that is just is impossible and will ultimately be done by AI systems that are highly imperfect and, and don't work particularly well. Um, but the other is just 
figuring out what is a legal and not legal content. I mean, it, it can take months to, to for our judicial system to decide what is a piece of hate speech or not. Right. Um, expecting a platform to do that within 24 hours and take it down immediately or be faced with massive fines is, is fairly unrealistic. Instead, I think we just need to put the burden on companies to prove that their products are safe. We do this in all sorts of other sectors, the auto sector, for example. Um, there, we have product safety standards for cars. Right. We, uh, we do this in all sorts of sectors. That If you're deploying a product on consumers in Canada, you, need, you should have to demonstrate that you have taken the proper mitigation strategies to their potential risks. And that's ultimately, I think, what we can do on these services as well. So what does that look like, you know, in practice when it comes to Facebook or, or Twitter or YouTube? Yes. Yeah, so, so when it means making them radically more transparent. Um, right now, one of the challenges is we have no idea why we're seeing what we're seeing online, um, why certain content goes viral and others don't, what incentives are behind that, who's paying to reach us. So I think we just need to open up that black box. And there are a host of things that other countries have done to, to, to move in that direction. And I think that, so that's sort of the table stakes here. Is let's radically open up the system so we can all see how it's functioning. Um, but the second is you actually need to, to ensure that these platforms are acting more responsibly. And we have this principle in Canadian law of a duty to act responsibly where, yes, you might have some liability protections as a platform company. You're not responsible for everything that everybody says and does doing your platforms. But with that liability protection comes some responsibility. And that responsibility means before you launch a product, you have to do a risk assessment on all the potential negative uses of that product. And you need to show that you've taken steps to mitigate that harm. Um, You need to have... um, recourse mechanisms built into your site. So if something bad happens, people actually have a, a person they can talk to or a process they can go through to get that harmful content removed, right? Because there's a whole host of things as a company you can do to act more responsibly um, with the power you have in our society, which is a huge amount of control about our economy, our social lives, our political lives, our democracy. And that comes with a real burden and responsibility that companies need to be incentivized to live up to. And how do we incentivize them? Uh, Is this about mandating this? Is this about finding ways to to encourage them to do this? Yeah, I think it it has to be forced. Um, We know from a decade of experience now that this market will not self-regulate sufficiently. So it needs to be enforced. And the way that can happen is, one, by removing some of the liability protection that they have, so make that liability, um, the, the, the protection they have from being liable for the behavior of their users. I think we need that make that conditional. Um, I think we need uh, strong audit powers of a regulator. So uh, when we regulate the financial sector, for example, we do not just trust that banks are going to operate responsibly. We have auditors who can go in and make sure they are. Um, that should be the case here, too. Um, we should be auditing, have audit powers to audit the algorithmic systems that are deciding what we see online, how we behave online, how these markets function. Um, so, I, look, I think, and ultimately, if they don't abide by these principles um, and these responsibilities, then there's going to have to be fairly large consequences. The, the EU, for example, or certain jurisdictions in Europe 
um, have fines of up to 5% of global revenue for breaking these laws. Um, and that is a very large sum for these companies. So, look, I, there are multiple levers we have to pull here. Um, but ultimately, these companies are going to need to be forced by governments, as they are in other jurisdictions and should be in our own, um, to act more responsibly. What about when it comes to users? Do we also need to be mm-hmm. looking at ways not just to, to protect users, but almost to empower users? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, where we are now in this ecosystem is that all the power is held by the companies themselves. Um, there's real network effects for us participating in them. It's very it's difficult for people with families and children and um, to step off of these platforms when we're all sort of using them and embedded them. They're, they're really important aspects of our society. Um, but all the other power, all the power is concentrated in those companies themselves. So if I want to leave Twitter or Facebook, for example, it's incredibly difficult to do so because um, they control my data, my social network, my relationships, my content. So giving users more power to take the content from these sites and move them to other potential competitors would be a real empowering aspect of this. Um, I think stronger data privacy laws to ensure that we, ha- we have more control about how our data is used would really empower users. I think there's a whole host of things we can do to ensure that the rights of citizens are prioritized over the interests of these companies. Very interesting. So in terms of whether this is doable, whether this can be effective, as you mentioned, we do have some evidence from, from other countries. What does it tell us about yeah. those two points? Well, I think this path, this sort of more product safety and risk assessment path is being implemented by the UK and the EU at the moment. Um, and it's still pretty early stages, but I think it's, we've learned from other countries that there, is, there, there are better and worse ways of doing this. It's obviously a really wicked problem of how to regulate the content on all of the Internet. Um, but taking this more um, upstream approach where we, we embed, we change the incentive structures of the system itself um, is possible, is being done in other jurisdictions does not curtail free speech in the way that other methods um, have been shown to do so. And I think it's pretty clearly the way the Canadian government should go as well. We'll see what the federal government ultimately decides to do, but perhaps there there is a path here they can draw upon. Uh, Taylor, appreciate the insight on this. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. All the best. Uh, That's Taylor Owen, uh, director of the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University's co-chair of the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression. So they've released their latest report, which really ties in to this this whole path that Ottawa seems intent on going down. And, And, you know, the previous attempt at this, or the previous version of this legislation, was roundly criticized uh, from all quarters that this really missed the mark in so many ways, which suggested that maybe the, the federal government hadn't really thought this through. This will make it easier for law enforcement to investigate and trace gun crime. I want to make clear that the records will be held by businesses, not government. And the police will need reasonable grounds to get access to those records. So that's Federal Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino discussing Bill C-71. 
Now, look, the federal liberals have not been shy, as we've seen, about introducing new regulations that apply to firearms and firearms owners. But, but something they vowed not to do was the reintroduction of a gun registry. How close is Bill C-71 to that, that gun registry that once existed? Because a lot of critics see some, some big similarities. Now, obviously, this is uh, not a government registry. But this certainly seems to be resources that law enforcement can tap into. Now, the minister says there's a, a threshold that law enforcement needs to clear. But obviously, we need to know a lot more about just how low that bar is going to be set. This puts the burden on gun retailers in terms of keeping those records and making those records potentially available. So this also increases the onus on on gun retailers. Obviously, there's an expectation that they ensure gun buyers have a valid license. I mean, that doesn't seem unreasonable, but this uh, really expands the background checks going beyond just the last five years. And in fact, you know, determining someone's eligibility, looking at their entire life. So some pretty sweeping changes uh, that the federal government announced today. So what are the implications of this? Well, joining us to talk more about uh, what this represents for gun owners, what this represents for gun retailers in Canada. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Rod Giltaco, CEO and Executive Director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. So we kind of knew this was coming, but now that we've we've seen it, we've heard from from the minister today. Uh, what's your initial reaction, first of all? Well, uh, there's a there's a number of <laughs> there's a whole whole suite of reactions actually, right. but primarily these these were measures that that aren't needed, and these are measures that uh, that cater to uh, a hyper political government that uh, that has always seemed to use people that would be. Uh, they would have a firearms license as uh, as their whipping boy. Yeah, I'm wondering what, what what the point of this is, and and maybe it is political at some level. But what's at least the ostensible excuse that the government's giving for for bringing in this change? Well, most um, most bad policies have at least a, a couple of redeeming talking points attached to them, and I think generally the idea is is that you don't want unlicensed individuals being able to buy firearms at a retail level or for private sales through through routes that legal gun owners would buy their guns. And no licensed firearm owner in Canada wants that to happen either. Sure. So it really starts coming down to a question, well, how do you how do you stop that? And probably the first question you need to ask is, wh- where's all the violence coming from? Are these licensed gun owners, are they using legally obtained firearms, you know, otherwise legally obtained firearms? And the answers to all those questions point to answers that are not a new gun registry, which is what's going on. So as it stands now, prior to this legislation, what what is the requirement on gun retailers when it comes to retaining records? So right now, no records per se are required for retailers, but anyone making a transfer of a non-restricted firearm has to verify that the buyer has a valid license. And that's and this is one of the things that's always been the law and mm-hmm. the onus is upon the seller to ensure that they are never uh, selling or transferring a firearm to someone that isn't that, that is unlicensed that's and it's a very serious criminal offense is trafficking right right so that's always been the law the law just never stated what the, that mechanism would be uh, so now we've got uh, quite a burden being put on, on retailers. So this would require uh, gun retailers to to keep these records for two decades. Is that right? 
That's right. And it's, I mean, part of that is the burden, and it is. Mm -hmm. But the other side of that is, um, well, there's a few dimensions, but one of the other sides of it is that this is very, very sensitive information. And now it's being held in gun stores. Information like somebody's name, what firearms they purchased, and their home address, and their PAL number, and their contact information. And all that information is being held in a central location in a gun store. And what makes matters worse is that um, Minister Mendicino has decided that any police officer can just roll up to the counter in any gun store anywhere in Canada and just ask to see those records and take a copy of them. And that's a real problem because let me just share this with you, Rob. Um, I'm an instructor for the RCMP Canadian Firearms Program. And when I started becoming an instructor in 2009, there was a case where a, a, a firearms officer for the firearms program had teamed up with a RCMP member in Surrey, and the two of them were trafficking firearms. When people would call the firearms center to surrender firearms or whatever, the RCMP member would be sent there, they'd grab those guns, and they would sell them to gangs. Now imagine that same officer making his rounds all in the lower mainland of British Columbia, getting all the information to every single person that bought a new firearm. So this is the vulnerability, this is the issue. That's the thing. So these stores are going to be required to have that information readily available. So maybe that even means, what, filing cabinets? Maybe that means just keeping it on computers that are based in the store? Like, it's going to have to be kept on site, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And for for 20 years, plus there's a provision that if that store uh, were to close its doors, were to end the business, all of those records, guess where they go? (laughs) They go to the government, and the government will enter those into their database and, and keep them forever. It's a gun registry, it is. So uh, the, the threshold by which then uh, police could access these records. So it, it seems really vague, this notion of reasonable circumstances. So clearly it's, it's not a warrant. Police don't need to get a warrant to obtain this information. They kind of just have to go in and ask for it. But what do we know about this threshold? Well, we don't know anything yet. So if, if the police are determining what is reasonable, right? I mean, you know, I've worked with police for a decade. Police are just people. So most of them are great. A few of them are in the middle. And then you have a few bad apples. You can't judge the whole barrel based on a few bad apples for sure. But that is a vulnerability when you have individuals that are just sitting there making their own mind whether this is needed or not. And certainly the police don't owe the store owner any explanation for why they need that information, especially if they're investigating something. All right. So, as you say, there's a lot of questions around all of this. Uh, where, where does this all go from here? What are you going to be watching for? Well, I mean, the the Liberals passed this uh, Bill C-71. This is back a few years ago that this um, this provision comes from. You know, it was duly passed through, through Parliament. This is the law. Um, it's just so much, uh, at, at this point, we're just going to see where this goes wrong and, and hopefully... Um, we can have this uh, this government uh, ended at some point and get a uh, a government that's just going to be fair to everyone in Canada, no matter who they are, and including gun owners. So that's what we're that's what we're striving for. Right, and I guess I mean the other side of it is if if the Liberals really want to bring back the gun registry, I mean that's a policy decision they can make, uh, and it certainly didn't work the first time around. So why not just be open about what they're doing and say, yeah, we're we're bringing back the registry, and instead of you know dumping this on to, to gun owners, at least own the decision and and do it themselves. Well, I'm not a huge fan of inflammatory language, but it is gaslighting. They're just, you know, Mendicino even said this morning, 
He said the word registrar several times. He said reference number, which is how you reference a, um, a, a firearm transfer from the old long gun registry days. He mentioned everything, store records, everything, but, send, but then turns around and says, this is not a long gun registry. You know, it's just, it's, they're, they're doing it. And, and that's how you know that it's, that it's just, it's hyper-political. It's not about public safety. We know where the sources of violence are. We know what needs to be done. That's no secret. Even, even a group of the top police in the country um, have said, we don't need a gun ban. We don't need uh, any of these prohibitions. We don't, licensed gun owners are not a problem. There was, this just happened in a, in a Senate committee where they uh, authored a study and they, they interviewed all these top cops. And and none of them are, are interested in harassing law-abiding gun owners. So it's uh, they're doing what they want to do for political reasons. All right. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Much more at firearmrights.ca. Rod, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. That's uh, Rod Giltaka. He is uh, CEO and executive director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. So they say this is basically a registry, a return to the registry, which was something the liberals vowed not to do. So this is basically a registry that, that dumps a lot of the cost and the burden and the responsibility on gun store owners. That they're expected to maintain all of these records for two decades. And, and that is potentially sensitive information we're asking stores to keep, to keep in store. Obviously, look, and any gun retailers obviously know about store security. After all, they're selling things. They certainly don't want to be stolen. But how do they do the same with information, with documentation? And so that's the question about, you know, the security of all of this information uh, and, and how and why police would be accessing it. Uh, that the liberals say the police need reasonable circumstances to go into a gun store and demand access to these records. But what does that look like? And how is this helpful in, in investigating crime in this country? To what extent are crimes being committed with legally purchased firearms purchased by registered gun owners? And I think we already know the answer to that. I want to focus right now on the ambulance situation in Alberta and how much of a crisis are we dealing with? Well, the union representing Alberta paramedics and uh, other health workers says this problem is getting worse. In fact, a week ago today, we saw in Calgary, for example, a deep red alert, 40 pending 911 calls and no available ambulances. So how did it get to this point and, and what needs to be done to, to address the situation? Well, uh, joining us uh, for, for his thoughts, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, President of the Health Sciences Association of Alberta, Mike Parker, joining us uh, on the line. Uh, Mike, so good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, thanks so much for the invite. So first of all, when we talk about a deep red alert, explain what that is. Well, i got to be honest with you. It's a new term that we've kind of come up with here and, and the reason why. Uh, they've changed the way that they report code reds now uh, through AHS. We've been talking about code reds for years, and in the past, for any practitioner out there, a code red is following an event like Tornado 1987 in Edmonton or the Humboldt bus crash, where every resource is depleted in an area for an incident. The employers continue to say it's only one or two minutes that we go code red, and now we see this new change. This is all new to us and how we're seeing 40 staff calls. So we're going to call it something different because this is not just a, uh, a mass casualty incident. This is not a two-minute event. This is 40 calls back in the city of Calgary with nobody to respond and, and no way to make up that, that shortfall. 
Yeah, and, and that's that's rather alarming that we'd ever find ourselves in that kind of a situation. So, I mean, is this becoming more common? It is coming more common. And, and when you look at any emergency system, needs an ability to have a surge capacity. So when something big happens, we have units available. Paramedics are ready to respond to those big surges that come in. Uh, in the past, we have, we've allowed the, the conversation of, you know, it snowed, so now we've got lots of more calls, or it's cold, or it's windy, or it's hot, or whatever other excuse the employer comes up with for not having enough available resources. But now we're running not just on a zero margin of available trucks, we're 40 calls in the hole now on, a, on an ongoing. And Edmonton didn't achieve the same number. They only got to 30 calls on hold that day, so, but, but it's not a not an isolated incident. We're seeing it uh, now become the new day. So, I mean, clearly something else is going on here, though. I mean, is, is this partly due to the pandemic? Like, if, if call yeah. volumes have significantly increased, what, what's causing that? So, the, 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 I, and again, AHS holds the, the keeper of statistics, Rob, and, and yeah. how they show them is how they see it. But I'm going to give you my opinion here. Let's see where we land. They've instituted the 10-point uh, plan. And this is one of the short-sightednesses. Uh, we talked about it. We said that this is a predictable outcome that's coming. But here's what it looks like. They've pulled all the uh, rural, rural resources back into the rural communities, which I 100% agree with. Let's be clear. There are things that I agree with in all of this. Okay? Right. So those rural units will stay in the rural communities. Those communities used to have hospitals that are now closed. They used to have health care that's now gone. The only access in a rural community are their paramedics. They need to be in the community. But we were relying on units in and around Calgary, in and around Edmonton, as far south as Panoka for Edmonton, or as far south as High River or Fort McLeod in, in Calgary area, to respond to calls as the volume got high. But we've now pushed them back, which again, I'll restate, I agree with. But this is the short side of this. Now we don't have uh, any resources. We are running uh, 12 hours straight on these trucks with no downtime for these folks. There is no surge capacity. And more, more uh, alarming is now we see uh, reports of 40 calls holding. Our dispatch centers, our emergency communications officers, are urgent disconnecting or hanging up on calls because the next call is ringing. They are so busy. Again, resource conversation. Our units are stuck in hospital. Again, there's nowhere to put patients. There's no flow through. And... Bob, I want to just say this. This isn't a furniture issue. We've got plenty of beds in the system. It's the people we don't have. Well, part of that plan that AHS announced last month, they said they're going to add five new ambulances in Calgary, five new ambulances in Edmonton for each of the next two years. That'll be a total of 20 new ambulances. But that, that, that's all still to come then, right? From, from the that's not happening now, Rob, is I think it? You're right. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't see them on the road today. I have no indication right. that they are active. Uh, what I will say is that AHS is uh, is uh, celebrating. They've hired 60 people, but let's be clear on who they hired. They hired casuals. They've got three full-timers and 50-some casuals and are basing this entire system on a just-in-time workforce that might come in or might not. We can't rely on a just-in-time workforce. These needed to be full-time people on full-time shifts so we can guarantee a predictability of response. And in this, what they've done is created a casual and enhanced casual. I mean, well, we got 40% of our workforce as paramedics are casuals. So what do we need? Is, is it simply a manpower issue, or does it speak to the whole system itself? 
there's, there's a couple of pieces here, okay? I will speak to this. We need to do everything we can to keep the paramedics we have. By forcing them into mandatory overtime at the end of a day so their 12-hour shift becomes 13 or 14 hours is only damaging them more, uh, denying them a break or a, a meal break or a restroom break because there are so many calls. Again, you are harming the people that you've entrusted with the safety of Alberta. This 40% workforce needs to be adjusted. We cannot have 40% casuals in the system. It's unsafe for the practitioners. We can't predict uh, the units that are on the road, and it's unsafe for Albertans. What we've also done, Rob, is we've closed down all of the safe consumption sites in this province that also included wraparound services for support. Those are all gone, and that is also part of our issue here. We have increased call volume. Is COVID still there? Yes, our hospitals are still full. Uh, so these pieces all start playing into this conversation. What about AHS's role? I mean, do we need more local control when it comes to, to ambulance dispatch? I mean, that, that speaks to the way the whole system operates here in Alberta. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I would argue the system on a provincial model is some of the best concepts uh, in North America. We have a full understanding province-wide. It has an economy of scale purchase. It's got all the pieces that are needed. Our dispatch center knows where every single truck in the province is at any given time. And all these flow-through pieces can be monitored. But when you've got dispatchers having to hang up on your 911 call to take the next one, when they are struggling, it doesn't matter which dispatch center you have. If you have zero units and 40 calls holding, you, don't, you can't just come up with more units, more paramedics, uh, regardless of the dispatch center you operate under. So the provincial model, I think, works. It's a good concept. Um, and each community can back up other communities. But what we've gotten here, Rob, instead, is the city of Calgary has no paramedics left. And they were the ones that we were supposed to rely on to back up places like a Chestermere or a Strathmore. They were going to back up those communities if something bad happened. Well, hell, Calgary can't even keep trucks on the road. (laughs) So this whole thing is is down. We're, We're down to our knees. There's nothing left. So the public's paying a, you know, a price for this, and obviously you know, those who work in the system are paying a price. So if, if this continues the way it is, Mike, I mean, where are we going to be at in, in a month or you know, later this year? I mean, how much longer can we continue with the status quo? Well, I, I'm not sure how I can answer that in a, in a comment that actually gives hope to those that we rely on. I, I want to provide hope to those who are out there giving their all every day. Responding 45 minutes to a cardiac arrest is devastating to the practitioner, never mind the family member who is going to lose their life out of this. Uh, I, I wish I had more uh, to give you on it. What is it going to look like? I, I don't know. I, as, a, as a frontline practitioner, and I hear from them every day, saying, I cannot do this one more day. Well, these are, the, these are highly trained uh, paramedics that you can't go out and just find. We can't just go get, there's not a bunch laying around looking for work, you know. These folks are in high demand countrywide, and they're walking out the door. So you guys, you're planning some rallies for this Saturday, correct? There's a healthcare rally this Saturday that's yeah. coming up, Rob, and we're just going to speak to the entire system. One of the pieces that we talked about here was the triage delay or where units are stuck in hospitals. Well, it's the entire, this is a system problem right from, from the moment you dial 911 to the moment you are discharged from your long-term uh, recovery. The entire system has been under pressure for years, and we haven't figured that one out. 
and it's not a, this is not an EMS problem within a hospital delay, but it's a systemic healthcare problem. We got less staff today than we did 20 years ago in the healthcare system, and our population has I don't know. You tell me how much has gone up in the last uh, ten, ten years. You know, yeah, quite a bit. I think I'm going to lose my headset charger, Rob. I'm going to switch over to my phone. There we go. All right. Yeah. So that, that's that's the message of this weekend. I mean, we'll we'll see. I, I guess what uh, response of any there is from from AHS and from the Alberta government. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, clearly uh, what you uh, what you heard last month this ten point plan that that's not going to cut it. Well, it's 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 a it's a step, Rob. But they've right. they've uh, moved trucks back to the rules, and again, I support the piece. Mm-hmm. But just look at the data when you got forty calls holding in the city of Calgary, and it, it wasn't anything special. There was no mass casualty incident. It was just another day. Yep. And I got to say this, Rob, uh, the information that we have comes directly from our members to us. And I got to thank each and every one of them for taking the courageous step to make sure that we know exactly what's going on on the front lines of healthcare, so that I can take a moment and talk with you about it. All right. Well, much more at hsaa.ca. Mike, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. Rob, thank you. All the best. Uh, Mike Parker, he's president of the uh, a- uh, the HSAA Union, representing uh, paramedics, EMS workers in Alberta. So that's their assessment of the situation. Not a pretty picture, they say. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.